history of the founding and actions of his church. Beginning in Acts 23, verse 12. And when it was day, certain of the Jews banded together and bound themselves under a curse, saying that they would neither eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. And they were more than forty which had made this conspiracy. And they came to the chief priests and elders and said, We have bound ourselves under a great curse, that we will eat nothing until we have slain Paul. Now therefore, ye with the council signify to the chief captain that he bring him down unto you tomorrow, as though you would inquire something more perfectly concerning him. And we, or ever he come near, are ready to kill him. And when Paul's sister's son heard of their laying in wait, he went and entered into this castle and told Paul. Then Paul called one of the centurions unto him and said, Bring this young man unto the chief captain, for he hath a certain thing to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the chief captain and said, Paul the prisoner called me unto him and prayed me to bring this young man unto thee, who has something to say unto thee. Then the chief captain took him by the hand and went with him aside privately and asked him, What is it thou hast to tell me? And he said, The Jews have agreed to desire thee that thou wouldest bring down Paul tomorrow into the council, as though they would inquire something of him more perfectly. But do not thou yield unto them, for there lie in wait for him of them more than forty men, which have bound themselves with an oath, that they will neither eat nor drink till they have killed him, and now are they ready, looking for a promise from thee. So the chief captain then let the young man depart, and charged him, See thou tell no man that thou hast showed these things to me. And he called unto him two centurions, saying, Make ready two hundred soldiers to go to Caesarea, and horsemen threescore and ten, and spearmen two hundred at the third hour of the night, and provide them beasts that they may set Paul on, and bring him safe unto Felix the governor. Let us pray. O oh Lord, we come unto thee as we have just praising you and acknowledging that you are one true living God. And we thank you so much for your great salvation and all the blessed blessings you continuously pour upon us, Lord. Lord, now we pray that you would open up our ears and hearts, Lord, to readily receive your word, Lord. Lord, that we would learn what you would have of us from it, Lord, and be built up and encouraged by it, Lord. Lord, may you be glorified through the preaching of your word. And Lord, may you be glorified through our, even our actions and our thoughts of you throughout this service and throughout the day and the week, Lord. As always, Lord. And again, as we always say, be ye glorified. It through, but be ye glorified amongst the heathen, but also be ye glorified amongst your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, well, good morning. Good to have us uh, again all gathered together this morning with our Bibles in our hands. And um, we are indeed... Uh, going verse by verse down through the book of Acts, God's truly inspired church history. It's a history, brethren, that we can 
depend on, amen, one that we can trust in. And so it's interesting, isn't it, how uh, we read church history, inspired church history, the book of Acts. We see how God established the churches, how the gospel would grow throughout. And it's interesting looking back, and we see so much of that in our own fellowship, amen. Even in some of the churches today, the good Bible-believing churches, amen, you see remnants of this stuff as it goes along. And Brother Dean this morning in church history, again, just talking about some of the men, amen, that God had used. It's funny how it never changes. Church history, if it shows us one thing, men never change. And the need that God would provide good, sound fellowships, amen, Bible-believing Christians to carry on this glorious message that we're going to hear this morning. And so as we are traversing our way down through the book of Acts, uh, we remember that the last time we were together, last Lord's Day morning, which was a couple of weeks ago, the Apostle Paul had almost been torn from limb to limb, amen, which is a stunning thing when we as Western Christians consider the persecution that we receive versus what Paul is contending with here as the Lord is leading him by those unbelieving Jews. In fact, Luke, you remember, as he's carried along by the Holy Ghost in verse 10, tells us that Claudius feared that Paul was going to be pulled in pieces by them. And so, again, we get a good description, if you will, of this mob that's going after Paul just simply for, what, giving his testimony, for testifying to the truthfulness of God, to the Lord Jesus Christ, and they were certainly having none of it. However, praise the Lord, the next morning, the Bible tells us, amen, that the Lord Jesus appeared to Paul, and he used this terminology. He used this glorious phrase of his. He says, hey, Paul, be of good cheer, amen. As you have testified here, you will indeed testify of me in Rome. And so it's a glorious statement that the Lord makes there. And it's a, a statement that really goes to his lordship, goes to his sovereignty. You remember a few times that Jesus used those terms in the scripture. He is dealing with the sinful woman, and she comes and he says, uh, be of good cheer, for your sins are forgiven you. Amen. And we should always be of good cheer when that happens. Paul uses it in Acts chapter 27 concerning God's lordship, if you will, over the souls who were on the ship with him. Amen. You remember that, if I can just paraphrase what he says there. Well, I'll actually quote it. Amen. Be of good cheer, for there shall be no loss of any man's life among you. God hath given thee all them that sail with thee. And so again, we see again the sovereignty of God. We see the lordship of God there as he is in control of all phases and manner of life. It's an amazing thing. So as we come to our text this morning, <laughs> the providential timing of the Lord's promise to Paul that he would indeed uh, in verse 11, that he would bear witness of him in Rome, was indeed a familiar, if you will, sweet, sovereign melody that rang deep down into his ears. Again, we remember what the Lord has said to him earlier, and I want us just quickly to look at that again, because Paul is facing great persecution, and the Lord continues to appear to him and say, Paul, keep preaching, keep going, remain faithful to the word of God. So turn with me to chapter 18 again, just as a reminder of God's will, his this perfect sovereign will being worked out as Paul is preaching. Look there, if you would, Acts chapter 18. We'll just read this uh, together again as a reminder to us. Verse 9, verses 9 and 10. Look again what Paul, or what the Lord says to Paul there. Then spake the Lord to Paul in the night by a vision. 
Be not afraid, but speak and hold not thy peace. For I am with thee, and no man shall set on thee hurt to hurt thee, for I have much people in this city. And so again, this is now the second time where Paul's been almost killed and martyred, if you will, and the Lord tells him, Paul, keep preaching, keep going, I am with thee. No man will set hurt on thee, because I have promised you, Paul, that indeed you will indeed make it to Rome, as I have said. And so again, the, the, the providential timing in Paul's ears of verse 11 there, when he says, be, be of good cheer, Paul, amen, you will testify of me in Rome. It's an amazing thing. In fact, I like what one pastor said as we lead up to our text. He said, after the comfort for Paul comes the conspiracy against Paul, which is going to lead us into our text this morning, brethren. After the solace from the Savior comes the storm from Satan, which again, we are going to see this attack after the promise given to Paul comes the persecution against Paul. After a night in the presence of the master comes a day, if you will, in the presence of murderers. And so again, we see our text. This is kind of the groundwork that's leading up to what is going to take place next in our text. There, If you would read with me verses 12, 13, 14. And 15 of Acts chapter 23. We'll take some of this in chunks this morning and uh, we'll go down through them together. Look there, if you would, Acts chapter 23. Listen to the Lord's holy words that we've already heard, but listen again. The Bible says in Acts 23, verse 12, And when it was day, certain of the Jews banded together and bound themselves under a curse, saying that they would neither eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. And again, there's so many things being brought already in this text. You're going to see a pattern here of these men, these 40-plus these men who were conspiring to kill Paul. Look at verse 13. And when they were more than 40, which had made this uh, a conspiracy... And they came to the chief priests and elders and said, we have bound ourselves under a great curse. So there again, it should be, our radar should be going up. We've already heard the word curse. Now they said, we're under, we've, we've put ourselves under a great curse, using that terminology again, that we will eat nothing until Paul is slain. So again, we see this pattern. There's this thing that keeps being repeated here. Look at verse number 15. Now, therefore, ye with the council signify the chief captain and bring him down unto you tomorrow as though he would inquire something more perfectly concerning him. And we, or ever he came near, are ready to kill him. There it is again. We see this constant pattern. There's this thing, there's this unevil, this unholy thing that these men are conspiring to do. Luke tells us here that the morning following the vision, that, and Paul's apologia, his defense, if you will, of the gospel before the Sanhedrin, that a group of more than 40 men, some 50 men, are conspiring to kill him, if you will. Now, for us to fully comprehend what is actually being said here in the text, to lay hold of the depth of hatred, and again, brethren, this is something that we have seen over and over again. When someone hates the Lord Jesus Christ, they hate the Lord's preachers, amen? They hate anyone who is connected to him. Remember what Jesus told his own disciples. If they, what? If they hate you, remember this, they hated me first. And so there's this connection that the Christian has with the Lord Jesus Christ in this idea of those who are against Christ. They literally hate those who are tied to him. And it's an amazing thing, brother. But for us to comprehend and lay hold of the depth, uh, as I put here in my little brain how it thinks, right, of hatred that is spurting like a severed vessel, like a severed artery from the hearts and mouths of these men. Our religious affections are indeed drawn, brethren, really, to verse 12, where in the Greek, this is important, brethren, as we understand the depth of this thing, it literally says that these men 
anathematize themselves under an anathema. It's a, it's a stunning thing to consider what these men have actually uttered concerning the need and the desire and the want to kill Paul. They have anathematized themselves under an anathema, which is quite stunning when you consider that. In other words, what we're seeing and what we're hearing from the text, there's a double dedication to destruction. <laughs> Just think of that. They have anathematized enough. They said, either we die or Paul dies. That's literally what they're saying. Amen. This is the kind of dedication that these men have towards killing the Apostle Paul simply for believing a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, brethren, this is demonic. This is absolutely, if you will, an escalating satanic kind of hatred. And again, we've seen through our preaching again, there's no one, brethren, that hates the Lord Jesus Christ more than Satan himself. No one can compare. Nobody can even come close to him hating the Lord Jesus Christ like Satan himself. So this kind of hatred can only be belched from the pit of hell itself. This is where it comes from. It's a stunning thing. In fact, I want you to see again in verse 12, verse 14, and in verse number 21, I want you to see this ever-escalating hatred that they are speaking of here, that the text is speaking to us here. Look at verse 12 again there, and I brought part of this to your attention already. Verse 12, and when it was day, certain of the Jews banded together and bound themselves under a curse. So again, they are anathematizing themselves. They are, they are and we're going to define curse, but they're, they're saying that it's either us or Paul. We're either going to kill Paul or we will die, one or the other. Now look at what we see in verse 14. Again, this escalating hatred. The verse 14, and they came to the chief priests and elders and said, we have bound ourselves under a great curse. So not only is it a curse, they've escalated it now to a great curse. This thing is building. This thing is growing with this demonic hatred of the Lord Jesus Christ and his preacher. It's stunning when you consider it. Look at verse 21. Look how they, if you will, use this word in verse 21. They bound themselves. In other words, that word means that they have twisted themselves together like a rope. You see, you know what a twine looks like when it's twisted? This is the idea that they have twisted themselves together in what? What have they bound themselves together to do? Look there at verse 21. The Bible says, but do not thou yield unto them, for there lie in wait for him of more than 40 men, which have bound themselves. They have twisted themselves up like a rope together. For what? What have they done? With an oath. It's the same word that's used. Interestingly enough, this word that we're looking at here in our text is only used one other time. It's used here in the book of Acts. And let me define that word curse, because oath and curse in this text are the same word. They have twisted themselves, they bound on themselves together to kill the Apostle Paul. Now that word curse means to declare or vow a penalty under penalty of excretion. Well, what's excretion? It literally means, brother, an angry denouncement. So in other words, what we have here is we have these men twisting themselves together. They are making angry, an angry denouncement against Paul himself. And again, as I said, it's only used one other time in the New Testament. Let me show you where that is. It's quite stunning when you think about it one other time. Here in the book of Acts and one other time. Turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 14. A very familiar portion of scripture to us. A very, very familiar portion of scripture. Again, the only other time this word is used, we find here with Peter as he is in the middle of his denial of the Lord Jesus Christ. He denies him, if you would, there first time in verse number 68, but he denied 
Look at verse 70, but he denied it again. And we get down to verse number 71, and again, this word appears here as the apostle, uh, well, it's later the apostle Peter, but Peter here, the Bible says, but he began to curse. Now, it doesn't mean he was swearing. It means that he is yelling loudly. He is denouncing to the whole world that he knows not who this Jesus Christ is. I know not this man. I am not connected to this man. I don't know who he is. So again, we see Peter here again. This is his great denouncement. He began to curse and to swear, saying, I know not this man of whom ye speak. The only other time in Scripture where it is used in this fashion is where Peter himself, amen, begins to curse. And he yelled an angry vow for all to hear an angry denouncement of who Christ is. And so this is the depth, really, brethren, of what we see here. This is where we're going. This is the depth of the hatred that these men really have. They have indeed anathematized themselves with an anathema. Think of that for a moment, declaring, I die or he dies. That is quite a stunning thing when you consider that. These men, as I said, placed themselves under a curse of death. If they didn't bring about Paul's death, they themselves were going to be killed. It's a stunning and amazing thing. But let us, brethren, as we, again, as we consider those, those verses that we just looked at, let us, if you will, consider a second unholy ingredient that compounds and magnifies the depth of this demon-fueled hatred. And again, brethren, to, to really get a grasp and understand, we can't comprehend when we just read the text what they're really considering, what they're really doing, and how deep this runs. But I want you to notice again there in verse 12, again, as we look at 12, 14, and 21 again, because there's, again, another ingredient that's added at the end of the text, which really does heighten and compound the the hatred that we see here in these verses. Look at verse number 12, and again, this common pattern right towards the end. They have placed themselves under a curse, saying that they would neither what? Eat or what? Drink until they've killed Paul. Now, you need to start thinking about this, brethren. What exactly is the word? If I asked you this morning, what is the word that the Bible brings forth concerning when one does not eat or drink? Yeah, thank you, Howard. Fasting. So in other words, these men are fasting. <laughs> we're not going to eat or drink anything until Paul is dead. Do you see the depth of what they're going to here? They, they bring a double anathema on top, and then they say, you know what? We're not going to eat. We're not going to drink. We are going to fast until Paul is dead. Well, it doesn't say it once. They reiterate it. Again, brethren, look down there at verse number 14 right towards the end. Again, it's the curse, and then they're not going to eat or drink till he's killed in verse 12. Verse 14, the Bible says, And they came to the chief priests and elders and said, We have bound ourselves under a great curse, that we eat nothing until Paul is what? Slain. Again, this is on their mind. And it doesn't stop there. Again, it is reiterated, the depth of this, over there in verse number 21. Again, look what it says. He says, With an oath, verse 21, that they will neither eat nor drink till they have killed him, and now they are ready looking for a promise from thee. Again, brethren, when you consider what this is, and again, these are Jewish men, okay? So they are very familiar with fasting. Let me ask you this. What's another word that is directly tied to the word fasting in all of Scripture? What is one that comes together? When you fast, you pray. Oh, there's Howard. He had, he had it right. So what we have here, brethren, is this, is that the godly calling is to fast and pray for a brother. These men are fasting and murdering the brother. 
Think of this, brother, what that means, the implications of that. We're not fasting and praying for Paul. We're fasting that we might murder Paul. It's a stunning, amazing, unholy, ungodly thing. And this is the craziest thing of all, brothers and sisters. You know what they think? They think they're doing God's will. Brothers, think of this for a moment. Deception. You know, you read things, you study these things out, you try and understand these things, the depth of Scripture. And to me, that word deception just keeps coming up. What's so deceptive about deception? <laughs> well, I'm glad you asked, because you don't know you're being deceived. If God doesn't open your eyes and your heart to deception, you will follow it along, unless he gives unto you great discernment, the ability to understand that you are being deceived. And brethren, there's many who are being deceived today. These men have a hatred that we can't even hardly begin to understand. And they actually believe that they are doing the will of God. Stunningly amazing, brother. And again, teaches us so many practical lessons in our own, in our own heart, doesn't it? Now, it's interesting that they go ahead and they add, well, I call it the cherry on top. Look at verse 15. Not only are they just simply dedicated to murdering Paul, they're fasting and they're going to murder him and not going to eat and drink until that happens. Then they go ahead and tell a little lie. Let's go ahead and just tell a little lie here in verse 15. Look what the Bible says there. Now, therefore, ye sh you with the council signify the chief captain that he bring him down unto you tomorrow as though he would inquire something more perfectly concerning him. And we, or ever he come near, are ready to kill him. Again, what we're going to do is we're just simply going to insert one of Satan's other tools. What does the Bible say about Satan? <laughs> He's been, what, a murderer from the beginning. He's a liar. This is where it comes from. Again, you see the depth now of what they're doing. Again, all under the auspices of thinking they're doing God's will. It's stunning, brethren. So we're going to insert this little, hey, why don't you just go ahead and uh, tell him that we, you know, we're going to bring Paul down here uh, because you need to investigate him a little more clearly. Amen? So deception, lying, murder. Think, brothers, of what's happening here. And again, when someone calls us a Jesus freak, we think we're really getting persecuted here in America. But brothers, I'm convinced this sort of thing, it was said this morning in Bible study, is coming your way soon if you are a true Bible believer, if you're not a compromiser, if you're not one who will just go with the flow of every liberal church that, that's out there. We are becoming fewer and fewer and fewer. One of the things that the Lord is doing in all of this is he's bringing Romans 1 as his judgment of abandonment is upon our nation is he is separating the goats from the sheep. There is no question about that. That's one of his glorious purposes. This is what he's doing. Amen? It's stunning. But this is what's really taking place. This lie. This. So, brethren, think of this for a moment. Their conspired lie is a grievous sin. The very men who are supposed to be upholding the law of God, supposed to be leading people in righteousness and holiness pertaining to the law of God, here, indeed, happily disobey him in it, knowingly and with forethought and malice. Oh, brethren, it is such a lesson for us, isn't it? 
as we consider our glorious text. But it's beautiful, brethren, again, because as we know, as we've seen over and over again throughout the book of Acts, that God is sovereign in all things. And he has been placing his glorious, divinely used instruments all around Paul, his whole, that we, as we've been watching and seeing this. Amen. So look what God does. Look what he does here in verses 16, 17, and 18. Look at here. The Bible says, And when Paul's sister's son heard of their lying in wait, he went and entered into the castle and told Paul, I want you to consider this for a moment, brethren. This is the only time, the first and last time, that Paul's nephew is ever mentioned. Ever. In all of Scripture. And I can tell you now, brethren, as we stand, as I stand before you this morning, that this is not an accident that Paul's nephew is standing there in the council hearing what they're saying. Not by any stretch of the imagination. The Bible says there as we continue, verse 17. And again, we're introduced to a, another, if you will, uh, compliant uh, man amongst the heathen. And it's this man. Then Paul called one of the centurions unto him. God had prepared this centurion to do his bidding, to do his work. If you think for a moment that a prisoner is going to call over a centurion and say, hey, you should take this guy over here, take him to the governor, take him over here to, to Claudius. Yeah, you know what's going to happen? There's going to be a regular prisoner who's going to get whacked and beat for even daring to utter such a thing. And here's Paul, God who ordained this man, the nephew, and also this centurion. We cannot miss this as God has prepared in his providence to send this centurion over to Claudius and then to have Claudius listen. I mean, brethren, I don't know about you, but I get, I get chills, I get goosebumps thinking that as we apply this even to our everyday lives, which we should as we get to the end, we'll see this, that God is ordering and is in sovereign control of every incident in your life. Everything. You can trust him in everything. Yes, even the small things, brethren. Oh, yes, we're going to look at how glorious this is, that a true child of God will just say, Amen, Lord. You have ordained this for me. Isn't that what Job said? If we could turn to Job chapter 23, we would read immediately. He submitted to God because why? Because it's all been ordained for me. He trusted completely and wholly in what God is doing. It's the same with Paul here. It's amazing. Look at there as we continue uh, our verse here. The Bible says, Then Paul called one of the centurions unto him and said, Bring this young man unto the chief captain, for uh, he hath a certain thing to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the chief captain and said, Paul the prisoner called me unto him. And prayed me to bring this young man unto thee who has something to say unto thee. And again, brethren, as I have already said, we're introduced by Luke through his inspired pen to two more of God's divinely used instruments. Paul's nephew, again, as I said, who's never mentioned again, never seen again, but he is providentially placed in the council hearing what the council is saying. Who then goes to the second, if you will, if you, well, the cooperative centurion, that's what I call them. He's acting freely, but he's cooperative with God's perfect plan. <laughs> it's amazing, isn't it? 
he goes and tells Claudius, hey, here, bring this young man over here because he's simply complying to Paul's request. His nephew hears their unholy plot to ambush and kill Paul as he's being transferred again under the auspices of their lie because it's nothing but a lie to get him to bring Paul uh, out in the open. In fact, gloriously through what we see here, all of this is set, the stage is set, and what does God do? What does God sovereignly do? See, this is the thing. You think about, you think about liars. <laughs> you know what eventually happens to liars? The truth is exposed. It is brought out. Because after a while, you can't remember what you lied about. <laughs> it's an amazing thing. You just tell one lie on top of another one, and eventually what happens is God exposes it. He brings it to light. What does he say? They, they'll shout it from the rooftops, brethren. And he, by his glorious sovereign hand, reveals the lie through this young man, Paul's nephew, who just, quote, unquote, nope, don't say it, happens to be there. No, he is divinely placed in their midst. And look how he reveals it to Claudius. Look there at verse 19. Look there what the Bible says. Then the chief priest took him by the hand <laughs> and went with him aside privately and asked him, what is it that thou hast to tell me? Can you imagine again the reception that's there? That's a willing tool of God. He is a Roman, brethren, he is a Roman unbelieving, pick the adjective. He could care less about Judaism or about Christianity and yet he takes him by the hand and says hey come over here and what is it exactly you want to tell me you look on there as the Bible says verse number 20 uh, not 21 but but do not do uh, yield unto them for their for they lie in wait for him of them more than 40 men which have bound themselves with an oath and they will neither eat or drink till they have killed him and now are they ready looking for a promise from thee so it's, it's amazing you see that there, brethren. Again, their, their, their lies revealed, really. I, I wrote this down in my notes. I think about stuff sometimes by the town crier. You know what a town crier is? Remember in the old days, brethren? Amen. You know, it's, it's 1145 and all is well. It's high noon and all is well. They would report that to the whole town. Amen. And here we have God's divinely ordained town crier going to Claudius and saying, they're lying to you, don't do it. This is what they're actually up to. This is what they're going to do. It's an amazing thing. Their unholy plot is foiled by the holy hand of God. Listen, who allows, this is important again, who allows or vetoes, brethren, I'll say it again, God who allows or vetoes every if you will, every and all human equations. You think that God is just sitting up there. Remember that a long time ago. I don't want to get sidetracked. A pastor friend of mine let this lady get up and sing this song. And pastor, you should always see what they're going to sing first. What are you going to sing? What song are you going to sing? She gets up there and a long time ago, now you young ones won't remember this song, but I remember it because it was such a, it's etched in my mind. God is watching us from a distance. Remember that song? And 
she gets up there and starts singing that thing, and I look over at my pastor, and I'm looking at him, and I thought for sure he was going to corkscrew into the ceiling because here she is there singing. Now, the elders here, we would get up and stop it. <laughs> That's Well, it wouldn't get there anyway because we would always find out first, but if it ever did, it would get stopped, right? Well, anyway, he had to get up afterwards and explain. No, actually, God's not watching from a distance. God is actually intimately involved in your life and in my life, not from a distance, but through the Holy Spirit and through his glorious acts, through his glorious sovereignties. He works in our lives. Amen. I want you to see this again. People act like God's an old man just sitting up there. Oh, I hope everything turns out all right. I hope everything gets done right. No, he is intimately involved in all matters. In all, can I say it again? Because you get this question all the time. Well, what if a human does this and then does that? God is aware and is sovereign over every human situation. Every equation you can think of. Our little mind can't comprehend that. But God is far above us. He is, oh, he is what? Infinite. We are finite. We understand things to a certain level as the Spirit of God allows it. He's finite. Look here just at one example of God actually intervening in human life. Okay? He's not up there from a distance. He's intervening. He's watching. He's carefully guiding and directing as his will is being accomplished. Look at here, if you would, just an Old Testament text. Turn there quickly. The Lord intervening in human action as it is lived out. Look at Genesis chapter 20. Again, a, a very familiar portion of scripture to us. We are familiar with the name Abimelech. <laughs> and uh, Abimelech can testify that God does indeed intervene in what men are doing. He vetoes and he allows at his perfect will. And of course, keeping in mind here why this was so important that God would intervene, that he would do this, there was this little thing, uh, again, as God made Paul a promise that you'll be in Rome, there's this little thing that God made way back in Genesis chapter 12. If you go back there and look, not a little thing, well, this thing. Actually, if you look there, there's several promises that go along right at the beginning of Genesis chapter 12. You'll see this promise, this promise. And one of the promises that God makes to Abram is that, what? His family will bless, what? Many nations. The nations will be blessed through your seed, Abraham. And so we see here again that God's glorious purpose is going to unfold, that there's this seed coming. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, you see the seed. You see the seed going down through time. And brethren, who comes from the seed of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Our Savior the Lord Jesus Christ comes through that lineage. And one of the things I can tell you, brethren, in God's sovereign purposes, the last thing that's going to happen is Abimelech and Sarah are going to get together and have a child. It's not going to happen. Now look what Abimelech knows that a lot of people don't know, that don't understand. Look at one of the things here. Look at Genesis chapter 20 there, if you would. Look at verse number 1. And Abraham journeyed from thence toward the south, country and called uh, uh, and dwelt between Kadesh and Shur and sojourned to Gerar. And Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. Now, again, if we look, you know, it's interesting. Again, human nature is, is being on display here because Abraham didn't exactly tell the what? The truth. 
He sort of did. He did a Clinton kind of, you know, a half-truth. He just told a half-truth because she was actually his sister through part of the lineage, but half-sister, okay? But he doesn't divulge that. He simply says, she's my sister. The Bible says, but God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, behold, thou art a dead man for the woman which thou hast taken, for she is a man's wife. <laughs> How would you like to have the Lord show up in the middle of the night and tell you, you are a dead man? Why am I a dead man? What, what have I done? Verse 4, but Abimelech had not come near her. And he said, Lord, wilt thou slay also a righteous nation? Said he not unto me, she is my sister. And she, even she herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of mine heart and innocency of my hands have I done this. And isn't that great that Abimelech's going to take some credit? <laughs> you know, man wants to take credit from God. Especially when it comes to salvation. I'm going to take credit from God because I did it. Abimelech here is a righteous man. But look at verse 6. And God said to him in a dream, Yea, I know that thou didst this in the integrity of thy heart. For I also withheld thee from sinning against me, Therefore suffered I thee not to touch her. You don't think God, when he's, when he's working out his sovereign plan from eternity past, is not in the middle of things, in every human equation, allowing or vetoing what is taking place? Oh, yes, brethren, is absolute fact. He absolutely is and does, even still to this day. And again, I just, I want, to see, I want you to see this, brethren. Look there at Romans chapter 8. Again, a New Testament text, not just the Old Testament. Let's look at Romans quickly. Again, this idea. There are many texts in the Bible that we could look at concerning God's intervention, just as he's intervening here. Isn't it wonderful? Man plots one thing, brothers. But what do we always say? What's one of my favorite uh, conjunctions in Scripture? But God. Man thinks his foolproof plot is going to work, but God is there directing and guiding and moving. And look here, if you would, at Romans chapter 8. Again, this is probably one of the most misused Bible verses in all the world, apart from don't judge uh, or love your neighbors yourself, right? We've heard that for the last how many years now, and us haters who dared to gather together and hear the word of God and participate around the Lord's table, we don't love our neighbors. But this is one of the most abused portions of Scripture, and I want you to see this. Verse number 28. And we know that some things, <laughs> brother, do you have your Bible in front of you? All things work for the good. Now, there's some stipulations here. There's some caveats here. Because again, you, uh, the Lord is working everything out according to his good pleasure, his good will. Amen? And so what we have, we have a sovereign promise that God is going to work all things out, what? For the good. But what do we see here in the rest of the text? His sovereign promise gives way to a sovereign caveat. And again, if you look there closely, he, together for good, to them that love who? God. Now, brethren, let me ask you something. Does everybody love God? If I stood up here this morning and said, does everybody love God? You would have to say no. Everybody does not love God. And so we have a sovereign caveat. He's going to work all things out for their good who love God. Why do we love God, brethren? 
Quote First John for me, somebody. Because he first loved us. So there's a caveat there. He makes a promise. There's a caveat that he makes to those who love God. And then look at the third thing there again. But this, the idea here is God is working in Paul's life in the book of Acts, all for his good, all for the Lord's good, because what? Because he's called Paul, he saved Paul, and Paul loves God. Look there, if you would. To them that are called according to his purpose. There's the third stipulation, if you will, in that text. This isn't a universal text that just we just quote it and, well, God's working all for everyone, all the good. No, actually, there's some things that you have to look at the text and go, wait a minute, there's caveats to that. It's an amazing thing, brother, when you think about that. The Lord is working out good for those who love God and those who are called according to his purpose. That's a fact. That is absolutely true. The conspirators had such high hopes for finally doing what we read earlier in the text, and that is ridding the earth of Paul. <laughs> they, they, they were trying everything to rid the earth of Paul, to, to kill him, literally. What they thought was a brilliant, foolproof pro, uh, plot, God had already worked out the events. God had sovereignly worked out the events of this day. Brother, this thing we must always remember every day. The Lord is working out for your good. If you're a Christian, every day he's doing what he's doing for your good. God already worked out the events of this day, thereby keeping his promise to Paul in verse 11 that he would indeed testify in Rome. Again, this is where it goes back to. It's what God said. God promised Paul you're going to go, and it doesn't matter. Even though it looks like you're going to be torn from limb to limb, looks like, oh, Claudius looks and sees, oh, my, they're, they're going to pull him to pieces. Be of good cheer, brethren. Even as it looks dark and dingy, the Lord God is indeed moving and working and keeping his promises. Finally, brethren, as we look there, look back at Acts chapter 23. Look at verses 22, 23, and 24 as we bring things to close. Look at what it says there. And he called unto him two centurions, saying, Make ready two hundred soldiers to go to Caesarea, and horsemen threescore and ten, and spearmen two hundred at the third hour of the night. And provide them beasts that they may set Paul on and bring him safe unto Felix the governor. Brethren, what a glorious way to close that portion of Scripture. Claudius Lysias, as whom we have already met, Remember, we looked at this text to a degree. We've already met him. He was indeed another instrument that God used to protect Paul, to make sure Paul gets to Rome. Amen? No question. And, and again, it's just on full display for us here to see in the rest of our text. It's a stunning thing. Claudius could not and would not ever risk having a prominent Roman citizen assassinated under his, in his custody. So he immediately takes steps, again, by the divine direction of God to protect Paul while he's being transferred to the governor of Felix. <laughs> and it's going to be a glorious thing, Lord willing, next week when we see who Felix was and what God did as he brought Paul to him. Again, think of this, taking the gospel right up into the governor's office. <laughs> Brothers, it would be like, you know, the, the, you know, you being arrested, the Burley County comes out here and arrests you, 
takes you into jail, and they, they suddenly go, hey, I need to talk to the governor. And they go, oh, okay, we'll take you up there and go up in the governor. Wouldn't that be nice, brethren? be fun to get in, old, in front of the governor, wouldn't it? Preach the gospel to him. This is right where this is going, right up to the castle, right into the inner sanctum of the government. <laughs> Again, it's so glorious to see that. He calls two centurions and commands them to organize a detachment of 200 foot soldiers, 70, if you will, cavalry troops. That's not enough. He then orders them to gather up 200 heavily armed soldiers. Luke calls them spearmen. They were the ones who were heavily, heavily armed. If you, I guess if you, we could consider in today's language, amen, it would be like the A-10 warthogs flying over, amen. It would be, it would be the, 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 the 50 calibers that are, that are set and ready to protect. This is what God is doing. This is what, what, what he's doing is he's using, again, Claudius to protect Paul. And as I, my little mind, and right smack in the middle of this sea of men is Paul, who is safely seated upon the horses that the Lord provided by the hand of Claudius. Think of that, brethren. You've got to think there's 470 soldiers. Count that up. You know how many there are? 470 soldiers and right in the middle is the Apostle Paul, who just, uh, just a day before had almost been torn from limb to limb. Now here's God keeping his promise to him and saying, you're going to Rome. And here's how I'm going to do it. I'm just going to have you sit on a horse, Paul. And uh, we're going to have 470 men around you. No one's going to get near you. Think of that for a moment. What we see God's sovereign hand at work doing his thing, it's, to me, well, it's an amazing thing. <laughs> it really is to consider the work of God. Let me just bring us to a close this morning, really with a practical point that we, there's many of them that we've gleaned. But I want you to consider this morning the events of your own life. I want you to think about the events of your own life and consider as you look and see how God has watched over you and protected you. I've told this before, but it's one that just sticks in my There's certain things when you're growing up that stick in your mind. Things when you look back and you say, that was the hand of God providentially protecting me. Long before I was ever saved, think of this, brother, and all of us, all of us can think of probably a moment in time. I mean, you guys have heard my testimony, a drunkard, a whoremonger, all of those things. We used to race. Are you guys from, I grew up in Minot. You're familiar with Minot? And uh, we used to race. We'd leave the edge of Minot. We'd race to Valva, two lane all the way. We just get to the end. We're highly intoxicated, hold the foot to the floor, passing vehicles on that side, passing them on this side. It didn't matter. And I'm not kidding you. Again, this comes to my mind when I consider the workings of God in my own life. I mean, I was ready to pass a vehicle. I had it to the floor and highly intoxicated. I was going to pull out and go around this car. And for whatever reason, I slammed on the brakes and did not pull out. And you know what was coming the other way with his lights off? Another car. All I can do is look back and say, that is Sovereign God working out in my own life to bring me to October of 1987 where 
the Lord opened my eyes. The Spirit regenerated me. And I looked at Jesus as the Savior, as my Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's interesting to look back now and see all of the occasions. So, brethren, we can all, I'm sure, think of occasions where God has intervened for sure. It's amazing as the things we have seen in his word. God who never sleeps nor slumbers. Unless you're careful a dollar, a devil. I like what one pastor said. God delights to work behind the scenes. A storm of rain, perhaps, or a delay in a traffic jam. Or seemingly an unscheduled meeting. Can I say that again? Or seemingly an unscheduled meeting. Well, maybe in your mind it was unscheduled. But not in God's economy. Often unknown to us, some danger has been averted. Or some change of direction has been wrought in our lives. I like what he said. Omnipotence has his agents everywhere. Nothing is an accident. Nothing is happenstance. Nothing that takes place in your life is any of that. In fact, let me encourage you with the words of the old hymn, Thou, O Lord, which reminds us again of God's who never sleeps or slumbers, his continual watch and care over his sheep. I'll close with this. Many are they increase that trouble. Many are they that rise up against me. Many be there that say of my soul, there is no help for him in God. That's what the world tells us. But thou, O Lord, are a shield for me, my glory and the lifter of my head. Amen. That's what the Lord does. I cried unto the Lord with my voice, and he heard me out of his holy hill. I lay me down and slept and awaked, for the Lord sustained me. For thou, O Lord, art a shield uh, for me, my glory, and the lifter of my head. This is what Paul understands. This is what we see, that the Lord God is sovereign in all human equations. Even in those things where you think, how can this be, Lord? How could God possibly use this for his good and my good? Even in the things that are, even when one hears these words, and I think often of Diana's son, you have cancer. It's an aggressive thing. It looks like we got it taken care of. And you go back again and they say, nope, now it's in your lungs. Even in those things, brother. He's using that. He's, he's using that for his glory and for his ends. Amen? So it doesn't matter if it's a joyous, glorious thing. Think of Keith, his family up there. Not to pick you up, just to single you out, but think of the good the Lord is doing there. Think of the rallying cry that's happening. <laughs> that's all I can say. That's all I think about when I watch those things is, that the Lord would be so good to put people around you guys and say, Amen, I, I agree with that. I'm an old-fashioned Christian. I believe in those things. So it's glorious, brethren. 
No matter what it is, the Lord is watching over you, caring for you, never sleeping, never slumbering. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we again are so thankful for your word, thankful for that which has come forth from it. We thank you, Father, for the inspired history of the church and how you worked your glorious will in all of it. We think of all the people (laughs) that we see coming forth in the book of Acts. There are so many that you used. There were many that you used who were indeed called by you, who were indeed used by you as Christians. And we certainly understand that, that you would change a man or a woman or a child. You would make them a new creature, a new creation, and then you would use them for the furtherance of the gospel. We, I think, most of us anyway, can certainly grasp and get a hold of that. It's such a glorious thing. And and yet we also see, on the other hand, where you used pagans, those who were anything but believers, and still brought forth your glorious plan. And we thank you for that. Father, we pray this morning that uh, those who are Christians here, those who are sheep, that they indeed were edified by the singing of the hymns, that they were edified by the hearing of the word of God. And Father, even now as we are about to gather around the Lord's table, as we do every week, may we be edified in remembering what you have done for us. We're thankful for that. And and Father, we think also of the lost sheep who have not yet come to Christ, who have not yet believed and trusted in him. We pray that maybe today will be the day that the word of God has pierced their heart, that the spirit of God is regenerating and that you are drawing, that they might look and see the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. Father, now again we praise you for your goodness in all matters, in all things, working them out for our good in all matters, in all things. Father, we love you now and pray all these things in the Lord Jesus Christ's name, the name the Bible says that is above every name, the name at which every knee will bow and every tongue will indeed confess, the Lord Jesus Christ to the glory of God. It's in his name that we pray and all God's people said, amen, amen.